Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments on digital taxation. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. This week, we've hijacked the Traveling Inside Tax Policy Studio outside Tucson, Arizona, where I'm happy to be joined by Tad Fowler. Tad is the Vice President of Tax Operations at Procter & Gamble and was recently promoted to the role of Assistant Treasurer. Tad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Doug. Glad to be here. We do a lot of navel-gazing here on the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast and and a lot of introspection with a bunch of advisors. You're officially our first taxpayer, like real taxpayer, that has uh, joined the podcast. Glad I could be first in something, Doug. (laughs) That's great. So several things I'd like to, to talk about because you guys have really, Procter & Gamble has been front and center on uh, a number of issues um, and very act, active in the, the, the global tax policy debate and, and discussion. But maybe before we talk about guilty, which fans of the podcast know is one of my favorite topics, and um, we'll talk a little bit about digital tax, let's start with the, with the treasurer role. Um, very exciting. Congratulations on the, the new role. And what I'm interested to know is, was tax reform, was the TCJA really the, the panacea for, for cash and for treasury management? We now have our so-called territorial system, which, as you know, I don't really believe it's truly a, a, a territorial system. But with the repeal of Section 956 or the option to, to be able to opt out of, of 956, Talk about, you know, particularly your experience and almost 30 years in, in tax um, and now as a treasurer role, how, how has the game changed with tax reform? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Doug. I think, you know, one of the things I'm learning as I get into my role is there's a lot of different aspects of, of managing the earnings of a company. And I think, you know, U.S. tax policy historically was another barrier to managing our earnings as efficiently as we could. If you go back sort of historically, you know, P&G's been building its international business for over 100 years. And, you know, we have a regional supply chain just to be cost effective and to be able to compete with local and regional competition. And so between investing in our brands as we're entering new markets, building uh, production capacity, you know, the buildup of cash wasn't really an issue for us for for a long time. And it was really probably the last you know, five, six years where we started building excess cash overseas. And so the issue of repatriation, you know, be, became a, a bigger um, concern for, for P&G, really on a longer term basis. Mm-hmm. Um, from a capital structure standpoint and from a rewarding of our shareholder standpoint, I mean, we, you know, really over the last 15 years have distributed over 100% of our global earnings to our shareholders, whether it's through the dividend, which is about a, you know, historically a, a 50 to 60 percent uh, payout ratio, earnings payout ratio, and share repurchase. Um, you know, we've we've been rewarding our shareholders, and you know, when you've got 40 percent of your cash flow overseas and it's starting to build up, you know, the the ability to get that cash and get it to your shareholders becomes very important. And you know, we're fortunate to have a very high credit rating. We're a double A minus credit rate credit rated company, so we had access to to financing, mm-hmm. all right? And we had access to financing at very cheap rates. So as cash is building up offshore, 
yet we were borrowing in the U.S. to compensate for the fact we didn't want to repatriate so that we could give our shareholders their returns. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in order to maintain a double A minus credit rating, you've got to meet certain financial metrics. And on a long term basis, you know, we weren't going to be able to continue to meet the metrics we needed to to keep our credit rating, which we view as a very key asset of the company. And so eventually, and it wasn't necessarily in the short term, but eventually we were going to get to a point we had to make a decision. Do we reduce share repurchase? Do we reduce the dividend? Do we repatriate cash? Or do we take a downgrade? And those are not a decision that anybody wants to make in the company, particularly if you're the CFO. So we knew that on a long-term basis, we needed to get to a different system, which Mm -hmm. is why tax policy and, and playing in the tax policy arena was a key priority for the company. I think now that we're in a, as you call it, quasi-territorial system, that capital constraint of repatriating cash has gone away. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one less barrier we have to have to manage. And um, you know, post-tax reform, we've been on a, a mission to repatriate our cash as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. I think last I checked, we've repatriated probably in the neighborhood of 15 to 16 billion dollars in the last 18, 19 months, and we've effectively used that to to repay debt. Okay. Also, we've invested in our, our U.S. business, and it's continuing to fund our shareholder returns. So I, I would say yes. And, and if I look at tax reform more generally, certainly the rate cut was important. But on a really, you know, it was a pro-growth policy. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that certainly as a consumer products company is probably the most important policy angle of, of tax reform. Sure. It gave us some level of certainty and predictability midterm, okay, in terms of knowing what system we were going to be in. You know, there were debates the last 10 years about should we be a, you know, should we be a worldwide system, for example, okay, mm-hmm. which would have been very uncompetitive. And so we got some, some midterm uh, certainty and predictability there. Um, but the biggest benefit by far is on a long-term basis, we're not capital constrained. We can access our offshore earnings, we can invest them where we need to, and that puts us on a level playing field with our foreign competitors who are you know, very uh, astute, very efficient in how they were able to manage money. And on a long-term basis, we could have not have competed without um, you know, the ability to, to access our offshore earnings on an as-needed basis. I would say, you know, maybe the one disappointment from a treasury perspective with tax reform is I'm not confident yet we could move our internal banking operations to the United States. Mm-hmm. I, I wish, you know, um, today we've got our, our internal banking operations out of the UK. It's been a great place to, to have those. But, you know, if, if, if the U.S. tax laws worked, I would think, you know, the U.S. would be a very competitive place to move our, our banking operations. But I think there's still some uncertainty for me around 956. I think mm-hmm. beat raises some interesting issues mm-hmm. with holding taxes, et cetera, to where, you know, the certainty and predictability we have in the UK just mandates that we, we stay there for the time being. But, you know, those are probably, you know, how I think about tax reform from the Treasury angle. Yeah, so let's unpack, <clears throat> excuse me, let's unpack a couple of those. Um, so I think the first point that you were making was that under the old regime, simply bringing back those earnings to you know, fund dividends, share buybacks, et cetera, was just so costly with the 35% right. U.S. tax rate plus, right. plus the state rate. Yeah. So you know, the, the new system with the lower rate plus the fact that we had um, Section 965, which we've talked a lot about on the podcast, gives you that opportunity. You've already paid tax on those, mm-hmm. those undistributed earnings. Now you can bring those back. 
And I also think there's actually some incentive from a pure tax perspective to bring those earnings back. You bring back that E&P, it reduces some of your interest expense apportionment under the new system. You can manage 986C, which is foreign exchange gain or loss. So there really is some po- some tax policy incentive to, 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 to bring that cash back. And it sounds like you guys have already been just pouring it back. Yeah, well, and you get rid of the negative arbitrage of having cash offshore earning a lower rate than borrowing onshore. And even though our our rates are pretty cheap, it's still, you're not making money in that situation. So from a before tax standpoint, it makes sense. And certainly from a tax point of view, you know, there are issues with keeping cash offshore, certainly. And um, yeah, so our, our objective has been to get it home as quickly as we can get it. And then the other point that you made with respect to your, your non-US kind of financing operations in the UK, under our old system, because of mostly because of Section 956, big U.S. multinationals generally had two separate financing operations, mm-hmm. right? You had your operations in the U.S. and you had your operations offshore. The reason that companies needed to keep those separate from a tax perspective was that, you know, was to try to avoid 956. And, you know, there's that a technical issue that if you had your CFC as a net borrower to the cash pool, if it was one big cash pool, for example, and then with our formed and funded rules, you could theoretically end up with a 956 investment even more than the actual loans back to the U.S. And I think that for most companies, they just said, listen, we're just going to keep those separate. When tax reform came, actually when tax reform was proposed, part of the initial proposal was to repeal 956 mm-hmm. completely. And I think a lot of us were excited. It's like, oh, finally, we can do just one big cash pool, one big financing operation in the U.S., and then as reform was, was getting finalized, if you will, 956 snuck both back into the, the Senate right. the House, the House versions. And so, um, but then they've, you know, Treasury has since released the, the opportunity to effectively elect out of, of 956. Talk a little bit more about, you know, how much would that would benefit a company like P&G to be able to operate one big cash pool versus the, I say cash pool financing operations all in the U.S. versus kind of having the split system. I, I think, generally speaking, it would be beneficial. I don't view it as a huge constraint, at least in our ability to, to manage the, the cash situation. Um, but I, I do think, just from a before-tax synergy perspective, I mean, we've got, you know, the Treasury Organization in the United States, our, our banking operations actually in the U.K., um, but I think, you know, it's, it's, I, I wouldn't say it's a barrier, but I would say there would be synergies by combining those operations. Mm-hmm. I don't view tax really anymore, um, being a constraint, but I, I, you know, from a just efficiency standpoint, I think combining those operations would, would be beneficial. And I, I'm not confident today, even if 956 had been repealed, I still think there's issues with regards to, um, Beat, for example. Right. Okay. So if the, the CFC is a net lender right. and then you're going to have to accrue some interest as, as low as rates are, how big is that? But, you know, we've talked a lot about on the podcast, the U.S. multinationals do not want to be in a beat situation, particularly because ultimately that guilty inclusion becomes immediately subject to U.S. tax right. without the foreign tax credits. Yeah. And, you know, for us, Doug, I mean, we're, we're a long ways from beat. OK, but it's also one of those things that you know, until you can fully understand what could cause you to be in a beat problem, my goal is to stay as far away from it as we can. So even though it's not our top issue, we are still being very proactive about making sure we understand what, what could possibly cause us to be in a, mm-hmm. in, in a beat issue for a year. 
and what are the things we could do to mitigate and further move us you know farther away from the cliff if you will so um yeah i you know there's there's a lot still to learn with that particular provision but you know our goal is to stay as far away from it as possible that has certainly been the advice that i've been giving yeah. to, to my clients and taxpayers that <clears throat> for those u.s multinationals i don't i still don't think that that rule was intended to apply you know the way it the way it has been it's been a big shock for a number of companies but just staying as far away as possible from from that three percent from that cliff is is is, right. is very important. So let's talk a little bit about guilty. Okay. Um, you know, P and G was um, subject of a Wall Street Journal article, you know, several weeks ago, uh, Richard Rubin uh, about about guilty, mm -hmm. and I think the the surprise for for many U.S. multinationals with CFCs below is that. Even with relatively high taxed earnings, they were still subject to this global intangible low taxed income, um, primarily as a result of of expense apportionment. Right. And can you just talk a little bit about you know P and G's situation and sure. you know how you're approaching the the issue? Yeah. You know, it was total irony when I first woke up six seven in the morning and was was reading the proposed legislation and realized that the acronym for uh, this particular provision was guilty. That was um, not lost upon me, and um, I think was was um, very quickly understood within the tax community. That was that was very, yeah, very, very pejorative term. Yeah, very very ironic. Congress. But you know, look, we um, tax reform was a great step forward. Okay, sure. Um, I think I think the concept of guilty we've established now a a global base of. Um, you know, how to protect the residents' tax base, okay? And I, and I think we'll see versions of guilty even expanding beyond the U.S. as we move forward, and we'll talk maybe a little bit about that in the digital debate. But, you know, we, we had understood this was a minimum tax, right? okay? And, um, you know, our offshore tax rates, you know, anywhere from 18 to 19% in any given year. And so, Given the framework of the provision, we didn't think guilty was going to be an issue. Now, an another another issue was, um, you know, historically from an interest expense apportionment point of view, we were on the fair market value method. You know, we're a company that's got a huge intangible value. Our market cap's around $250, $260 billion. We've got physical assets and inventory and working capital of 50 or 60. So there's a huge intangible value there. And, you know, the interest expense apportionment rules on a, on a tax basis method didn't work for us. And so fair and market value was a, it was a more appropriate result. Well, and you're so old. I mean, the right. business is just so old, particularly in the U.S. Yeah. that, you know, for companies like yourself that started in the U.S. over 100 years ago and then expanded internationally from a tax basis perspective, a lot of those assets in the U.S. were depreciated and then you pumped equity yeah. into your foreign structure right. and it created the foreign, the fair market value really was a much more precise way to totally well yeah and, I mean, and look at our balance sheet it's self-developed intangibles right. which you don't have tax basis in so your fair market value was was an important strategy for us and when it was going away with tax reform it was like well who really cares i mean expensive portion right. it's going to be irrelevant we got a minimum tax we you know we pay 19 percent offshore but i don't need to worry about it and then um, you know, as it turns out, we've got this expense apportionment concern. And, and for us, it's, you know, not an immaterial number. It's not necessarily a material number. Mm -hmm. But from a policy perspective, 
you know, it's, it, it results in something we didn't think was, um, or our understanding of what the intention of Congress was, okay, with regards to uh, the guilty provision. And so, um, you know, our goal is to try to, to, to move it as far along as we can to minimize the in, impact of expense apportionment. For us, it really comes down to two issues. Hey, we're not a highly leveraged company, okay, but we still have interest expense sure. and the inability to use fair market value. We've got, you know, 60, 65% of our cash flows in the United States, our intellectual property is owned in the United States, and I've got 70% of my interest expenses treated as foreign source. That just doesn't make any sense, right. okay? Um, but more importantly, research and development, okay? I mean, we're the largest R&D spender in the consumer products industry in, in the globe, and we're, we've got a lot of research and development expense getting allocated to guilty. And I certainly don't think it was the intention to try to disincentivize research and development in the United States, and arguably th these provisions do that. And so I think you know we, we are on the Hill helping people understand that and trying to do our best to to help them understand we should be doing things to incentivize R&D, not de uh, disincentivize R&D. And I think we're gonna make some progress. I'm optimistic. I know you and I talked this yesterday. I'm probably more optimistic than you on on some of these things. Interest expense, maybe not so much, but mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a, it's a cost to the company that our uh, competitors aren't facing and um, not necessarily, I think, consistent with what we thought congressional intent was. I don't know, maybe it is. I, I'm not sure I'm in that much of an insider, but I don't think it was, at least based on our understanding of what they were trying to do. And so our goal is to try to move it forward and minimize the impact as much as we can. Yeah, and you had mentioned that, you know, what the further irony for a company like P&G is you mentioned that your intangibles are, 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 in the, are in the U.S. And so as we think about global intangible, low-taxed income, that there's really, you know, n the intangible low tax really just doesn't make sense, you know, with yeah. all of the historic brands that that you have yeah. um, sitting in 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 the U.S. Yeah. Well, and Doug, this will get a little bit to the digital discussion, but I mean, we yeah, we think of our intangibles as being, you know, if you look at it through the tax prism, there's a couple different elements of intangibles. There's the patents and trademarks, which are under the United States, and ultimately that. You know, we'll call those product uh, product intangibles, mm -hmm. and then we have our brand and marketing intangibles, which are really owned in the region that is running the particular business. So, you know, brand intangibles for Latin America are owned in Latin America. For Europe, they're owned in Europe. For Asia, they're owned in, in Asia. But so, you know, we are generating um, by the guilty definition low taxed. Well, we are not generating low tax intangible income. We're generating high tax intangible right, income, right. but we're being subject to tax under right. the low tax intangible income regime, and it, that just doesn't make sense. So, um, you know, I think again, I think we'll make some progress, um, and I do think we'll see this guilty concept played out around the rest of the world. Yeah, one of the things that we have talked about on the podcast before, and Pat Brown you know, who recently joined us from GE within the last few months that, you know, within Section 864, Congress did grant Treasury the right to be able to repeal interest or to turn off interest expense apportionment mm -hmm. where appropriate. So in my view, and certainly others view, they have the opportunity to turn that off. Now, the question, does that really reflect the intent of Congress? Who knows what, what the actual intent was? 
I know there's also been a number of things floated as far as potential high tax exception for guilty, how that would actually be constructed as kind of a head scratcher to me. Uh, maybe by the time that people are listening to this podcast, we'll have some, some guidance on right. that. That could certainly change the game with respect to, you know, trying to, to manage some of that leakage for companies with your profile that just don't have that, that low taxed income to, to try to turn off the, the, the guilty inclusion. But, uh, um, you know, there's treasury has got their hands full and, um, I, I do, you actually made a point that I want to reiterate. We spend a lot of time, particularly on cross-border tax talks, being very critical of these international provisions, but it's, it's helpful to be reminded by a company, particularly the size of P and G that like the 21% rate really went a long way oh, totally. to competitiveness. And, um, you know, we like to spend a lot of time as I think I started the podcast, navel gazing on some of these issues yeah. and being critical, which is, I think just the nature of the job, but, uh, the Congress certainly made a big step forward. No question. Um, the rate was huge. And okay, maybe we're not in a purely territorial system, but we're in a system that was much better than the old system and it'll continue to get tweaked. And um, yeah, it was a big step forward. Now, having said that, Doug, we, we use the um, concept internally. We're at halftime. Okay. Um, yeah. I think there's still going to be, there's going to be a round two of tax reform mm-hmm. debate, particularly as, you know, we, we, we get out a few years and we get closer to, you know, call it fiscal cliff 2.0 where individual tax rates are going to go back up to the historic rates. And that's going to be a very po- politically dynamic situation that Congress is going to have to deal with. And certainly I think the corporate tax rate will be in play. I mean, if you think about it, you know, when you include state taxes, the average U.S. tax rate now is 23, 24%. Mm-hmm. We're average with the rest of the world. That's you know, right. It's not like we started another race to the bottom. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with corporate tax rates around the world. I mean, the trend has been, you know, since the 86 Tax Reform Act, the rate going down. I think outside the U.S. it was around 48, 49 percent in 86, and it down, you know, had a downward trend at, you know, 23, 24 percent, um, I think is probably the OECD average today. We got to average, mm-hmm. okay, but we are a long way. Um, well, we're much further than we were two years ago, so... Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we're, we're going to continue to be active um, in Washington on making sure that we, we keep the co- competitive system we got. The other thing I'll mention, you know, interestingly, you mentioned the toll charge earlier. I think we had a toll charge of around $3.9 billion. And, you know, the return. Is that that was the tax? That was the tax. Right, yeah. That's not the inclusion. That is no, the that, tax that, that paid. Was, that was the tax. We had about, uh, you know, I think roughly $50 billion of undistributed earnings, not represented by cash. Okay, right. Again, that cash had been reinvested in the business. Maybe we had $12 billion of cash. I don't hold me to any of these numbers. But I think at the end of the day, um, you know, it's a seven or eight-year payback with the rate to cover the toll charge. Right. All right. So if we're going to raise the income tax rate, all of a sudden the, you know, that, that toll charge, you know, getting the payback on the rates going to be extended even further. And so I think that gets lost a little bit, but Mm. you know, there was a stiff penalty or stiff toll charge, if you will, to get to a new system. And I, I hope we can maintain where we're at or certainly not go backwards. Yeah. You mentioned there's kind of the big fiscal cliff and then there's already some of what I would call kind of the smaller cliffs. As we think about 163 J we think about, you know, moving the save the DA moving from the EBITDA to EBIT. There's the, you know, increase on rate right. on FDII. And so some of those smaller cliffs that they're going to have to deal with, 
Um, one of the concerns that I have, and this has actually already been proposed, I think Doggett proposed the repeal of Section 250. And so, you know, one of the concerns that I have from an overall stability perspective is that, you know, Section 250, the repeal of that, that is our 50% exclusion for guilty, right. and it's also the FDII lower rate of tax on on foreign-derived intangible income that we've talked about. And so just the repeal of that one section would all of a sudden really move us almost to a worldwide, worldwide system. system other than the 10% return on the tax basis and right. your depreciable tangible assets. Um, how would you? How would something like that affect the company? What's your reaction to to how uncompetitive? I mean, is that even a step back from the thirty five percent? I would think the rate still matters. Okay, but yes, that's a. I mean, look, the system we're in today is unlike anywhere else in the world, and yeah, I think that would be taking a further step back of um, unleveling the playing field, if you will, for mm -hmm. U.S. multinationals. So, you know, our competition in the U.K doesn't have a guilty. They don't have a worldwide system. Our competition in Germany doesn't have a guilty. They don't have a worldwide system. Um, and so, yeah, if we want to, you know, competitiveness, it's a competitive environment out there, right? And, you know, we're not just competing against U.S. multinationals. We're competing against Asia multinationals, mm -hmm. European multinationals. Local competition is fierce. So, um, yeah, we, we want to continue to try to move towards the most competitive system we can frankly, if, as well as to attract inbound investment sure. and make the U.S. a place people want to establish headquarters. And so, yeah, I, we, we're going to continue to push for the most competitive system the U.S. can possibly, uh, possibly manage. So let's move to, to digital taxation. I know it's something that, that you and, and the company have very, been very focused on, and I've been talking to a number of, of, of our clients about this issue. But Procter & Gamble, you guys make diapers, Right, like why Tad is digital taxation relevant for a consumer market, consumer products company? Yeah, well, it's a it's a very obvious question, and it's the one actually when we're meeting with policymakers around the world, one of the first questions we get. And I think, you know, fundamentally, um, the digital project has evolved. Okay, um, since I think it was first kind of um, launched. But, but I think if you fundamentally understand um, what it is, that I think the digital policy was attempting to do, mm -hmm. ultimately it was to try to give more value to, um, call it, I think of it as the market, mm -hmm. okay? And whether that's the consumer in the market because you're accessing them or potentially you're, you're gathering data that you can ultimately monetize or utilize. It was fundamentally the consumer in the market providing something of value. And so maybe that market should drive more of the allocation of profit for tax purposes. Well, we're a consumer products company, right? right? So inevitably, where's that debate in? And can you ring fence that concept um, to the digital companies? And by the way, I'm not even sure I know how to define a digital company. I mean, we, we're a very digital company. Right. Um, whether it's, um, you know, selling through e-commerce channels, whether we're going direct to consumer, whether we're getting, you know, we are a massive collector of data. Right, collector okay. of information on your Collect customers, collector. trends. Hey, we've been, we've been um, collecting consumer trend data for 180 years. Right. Okay, so it's maybe more efficient to do it today than it was 180 years ago. But, you know, so I, I just think inevitably, um, 
you know, we were going to get dragged into the digital debate. So why not try to get out in front of it? And so, you know, I, I think it's, and what I think it's evolved to is more of the who's got the taxing rights debate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Source country or residence country. And that's going to impact all of us. And so, um, I think, you know, that's why we find it important. That's why we are very engaged in the process. And, you know, our goal is to bend to, to educate policymakers, whether it's in the U S or Europe or Asia or the developing, you know, developing world, developed countries. Why is digital important to PNG? Why do we care about it? What's our perspective? Does the arms link standard work? Okay. We we're a firm believer in the arms link standard. I think we're a, we're a good case of, yes, it does work. And, May it need to get tweaked um, in order to in order to kind of resolve a, a a political debate, perhaps. But you know, our goal is to try to get to um, you know a a solution that largely maintains the arms length standard. Maybe it's tweaked a bit, but you know we're we're a firm believer it can work, and and I think governments that understand us and know know us understand that it can work so. so explain that a little bit what, what do you mean by that the arms link standard works and how does the digital debate potentially really impact that arms link standard well you know i think the arms link standard historically um has you know look we we the example i use at png is we earn 12 13 14 billion dollars of pre-tax profit okay who gets to tax it? Okay, we, we could have a supply chain where we're doing research and development in China. We own the intellectual property from those activities in the United States. We license that intellectual property to Europe for use in the European business. We happen to be selling a product in the UK that's manufactured in Japan. Okay, how are we going to allocate that profit for tax purposes? Well, the arms link standard has been the basis to do that for a very long time. And there's been a lot of experience with it. And you're basically allocating profit to value drivers. Right. Okay. And by the way, in that value chain, everybody's contributed something. Okay. In order to, in, in order to generate profit for the company. And the arms link standard is just the process to determine what each party earns. And I think the debate is when you have above routine margins. Okay. Um, the question is, and you've got, you know, real intangible profit. I come back to we're $250, $260 billion market cap company, 50 billion of physical assets. What is that intangible? Mm -hmm. And the real question is, um, where should the profit attributable to those intangible activities go? Should it go to where the intellectual property is created? Should it go to where the consumer exists? Okay. And I think that's fundamentally the, the debate. And so, that was probably a little more explanation than you were looking for, but um, I, I think it, the, the debate ultimately is when you're a high margin company and you're getting returns from intangible assets, where should that get allocated for tax purposes? Yeah, it, I, that was a fantastic explanation, by the way. And I, I think, you know, particularly for some of us non-transfer pricing folks, like just being able to, to think about the value chain and then, you know, just ultimately where that and customer sits does not necessarily mean where that is where all the, the profit should be. Right. And every, as the, I love the example that you give because each of those respective jurisdictions that you mentioned from Japan, China, UK, and the US all deserves some, something. something. Yeah. Something. Yeah. And it may be a routine return or it may be a above routine return, depending on the importance of their participation in the value chain. And, 
you know, that's a complicated exercise. And we've been, you know, we've been debating that issue with governments around the world for the last 20, 30 years. And um, you know, we've been very transparent. We help them understand our business model. We help them understand how we apply the arms link standard. And we've gained a lot of credibility and trust in that regard. And we've got, frankly, a lot of predictability and certainty right now with regards to the current system. And I think, and again, I think the governments would say, you know, P&G is paying their, their fair share, okay? At least as defined by the arms link standard. Right. What advice do you have for, for other big U.S. multinationals? Obviously, P&G, an iconic U.S. multinational. I think that you guys are leading by example as far as engaging with policymakers in the U.S., trying to educate policymakers outside to really understand the broad implications of some of these sweeping changes. What do you tell some of your peers and uh, about how to engage in that process or any advice that you have for, for other companies? Well, I think first it's to try to be engaged, okay, um, and, and to understand what what is the debate, okay. And I think um, you know it's a big investment of time, okay. I mean, we all have a lot on our plate to do, and you know, fortunately, P and G is a company that understands the importance of tax policy and getting to to pro growth um, policies and and trying to get as much certainty and predictability as possible. And so we invest a lot in that process. And I know that not everyone can do that, but I think. Stay engaged, be involved where you can be, understand what the debate is, and educate policymakers. Um, help them understand your business. Help them understand how you, know, how you do things, how you ap apply the arm's length standard, what's important to you from a tax policy perspective. What are your ideas in order to, to continue to help grow the global economy? And I think that education process is important. Again, it takes a big investment of time, but... Um, I would, you know, it, it does have an impact. Mm -hmm. Well, Tad, that's great advice. I think we're going to leave it at that. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Special thanks to our first taxpayer guest, Tad Fowler from Procter & Gamble, for joining me on this podcast. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's international tax services leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.